Welcome to Artists of New England. This is a podcast created to inspire you on your journey of artistic expression. Whether you are a career artist, a teacher, an emerging artist, or hobbyist, you can learn and gain support from your peers. We will explore the symbiotic relationship between these groups, lending insight and empathy towards each other. We will discover the where, when, why, and how of the creative process of artists living and working in New England, with occasional bonus interviews with gallery owners, collectors of fine art, and art historians. Perhaps today's show will bring you the aha moment you've been waiting for. Welcome to Artists of New England with your host, Laura Castanari-King, and the lovely Margaret Sheldon as co-host once again. Thank you, Margaret, for being here again on this lovely New England rainy day. Yes, we had a leak in our house last night, which makes the day even oh, more precious. Even since more. Since there was little, little sleep to be had, but <laughs> it's all right, you know, we'll yeah. just help, we're going to help some roofer have a good year, what can I say? <laughs> There we go. So, no, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Great. Okay, today's guest, very excited to have Carl Austin Height of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, who is a photographer using classical black and white photography to explore the intersection of the human and natural worlds in images charged with emotional and eloquent beauty. Hyatt revisits the landscapes of his world, rocks, shorelines, tides, horizons, knowing that perception is a living choice created anew in each encounter. I just love that. I love that, that I guess we'd call that a typical artist statement on your, on your website. So welcome, Carl. Thank you for well, joining us Well, thank you very much, today. Laura, for, uh, for arranging this and having me here as a guest today. Um, yeah, I'm thrilled. It'll be wonderful. I, I want to mention, too, that you have recently um, been the recipient of the Piscataqua I'll say it wrong, so to go ahead and say it, the grant that you just recently yes, won. Yes, the Piscataqua uh, Long Artist Advancement Grant. <laughs> Thank it, you, that's it. Yes. The, anyway. And let us please also credit the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation, which yes. uh, generously administers this grant. And uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a wonderful blessing for our community. It's been going on for, I think, a little more than 15 years. Yeah, and uh, for such a sizable grant, has a huge impact on the community. Wonderful. Well, I'm I'm excited to talk about where we're, where it's taking you and your work this year. Um, we have a little connection, you and I. That actually, <clears throat> if I had watched the video on your website that I watched this morning, which was the Chronicle segment, I would have put two and two together. Ah. <laughs> So what happens is, you know, I watched your talk last week on UNH and you start talking about uh, being with the shamans and I'm, I'm making this connection to my husband and I had a used uh, bookstore and coffee shop about eight years ago and we had in a, a lovely speaker who we did author's night and she came in and talked about her book and working with going and meeting the shamans. And so I sent you an email. I said, you know, is there any chance you would happen to know Hillary S. Webb? <laughs> and you responded in the, uh, oh, it was just so funny. Of course, she is my wife. So, But uh, saying that, if I'd watched that quick Chronicle segment, I would have seen her on there. So That's right. That's and right. I didn't watch that one. But anyway, we, yeah. you know, we'll get going here. And I think um, a lot of artists like to know a little bit about the, the background. So tell us how you got to where you are today in a... In a nutshell, if you can. In a nutshell. <laughs> um, 
Well, when I was in college, I I really wanted to be a writer, um, but uh, that came much more difficult. I had much more difficulty writing than I did photographing. Uh, and photographing, I did sort of casually, and I could see that I was just, it just came easily. I was naturally gifted at it, and everybody said, oh, you should be a photographer, and I you know, the things that come, particularly maybe when you're young, the things that come easily, you don't, uh, you don't value so much. You know, right. you want to struggle, True. like for meaning and significance. And, uh, but through a series of, well, I think I mentioned this uh, to you before. Um, so um, I ended up, going to an Ansel Adams photography workshop uh, out in Yosemite uh, in 1971, uh, which my father actually had signed me up for, um, <laughs> trying to help out his young son <laughs> to find some direction. Direction, in yes. So I went out to this workshop and it was, a, it was, it was about making a photographic book. And I, of course, was nowhere, I, I could barely take a photograph, never mind make a book of photographs. So they came in one day and uh, shortly after we started and said, well, you know, we have all these people here and we're making this book, we're gonna go through the process. Uh, we could use somebody in the dark room to process film and make position prints, and that sort of thing. So my hand shot up and so I spent the two weeks uh, working in Ansel's darkroom with his assistant, just processing the people's film and making position prints. But the great blessing of this was that Ansel would come in at the end of the day and say, well, guys, you've worked hard all day. Come on in and uh, after you clean up and uh, come on over to the house for drinks. But I was way there too you young. I was way too young to be that impressed with Ansel. And even at that time, photography was not what it is today. Uh, and Ansel is one of those people who made photography what it is today. Um, so that was a, that was very formative in seeing, I came from a middle-class business family and seeing all of these people and Ansel's friends, famous photographers and book publishers as adults working with photography and making images as a, as a way to make a living and a path through the world, that, that was a revelation. Shortly after that, I had a very profound experience out in nature where, again, it's always hard to put words on these things, but I had the feeling of the sense of the spirit of nature um, alive, conscious in front of me. Uh, greeting um, and something opened within me and in that moment photography and this love of the mystery of nature uh, came together all in one moment so it it really wasn't even a choice I just knew that I was a photographer and um, I drove home and got to work and that's what I've been doing ever since. 
I really love that. I feel like um, it. I feel like that clearly shows in your work. Your work stands out as someone who has a connection to not only other humans. I mean, your your figurative portraits are gorgeous, and you're capturing something. I you know, like you say, it's so difficult to put into words, but but not only to feel it, but to capture it in the way that you do on film is just mesmerizing and and so i i like to hear that story of well thank you very much and that is the that is the challenge particularly for the kind of photography that i do which is usually very representational there's the real world Mm -hmm. uh but how do you also get that that unseen dimension to come through a work of art um well it's interesting isn't it you know it when you see it, when it happens. Yes. You know, it's, it's something, one will stand out from the others. Yeah. It's that sort of, which is, I mean, I don't want to get too, you know, as my friend would say, woo-woo about this. But, you know, it, there is sort of a, a, a dialogue with a piece of work that hits the mark for you, that one that makes the connection. I feel like it's, um, it's very electric. Like, you know, as a painter, I know when a painting is a good one. It, from the beginning, as soon as you're in it, you're like, oh, it, it's kind of like, I always think this is going to be easy because there's that deeper connection than just painting what you see. And it sounds like that translates to photography. Um, yeah. I, I'm just struck by the fact that uh, I've seen thousands, I'll say, probably more than thousands, of photographs that, you know, they're nice photos. And yet, when you see the work of Ansel Adams, and, and I don't mean to sound pandering, but your work very much does this, where you look at it and you, I feel like it is uh, portraying more than the image that was taken, right? There's another depth. And it's it's funny because as artists, we always think it's, I always think, you know, you think two-dimensional work made with your hands, so to speak. And yet the photographer is working with that intermediate, intermediary piece of equipment yeah. of hard. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you think it wouldn't be as intimate because there's that cold material distance, but it isn't. It's, well, I mean, when it's good, it's very good, so to speak. Yeah. You know, there really is like, there's this infusion of an energy that's different. So it's, oh, gosh, eh, we should make sure we, at the end, we'll give everyone your website just so yes, as they listen to this, they can look at the work because it's remarkable to me. I can mm-hmm. see that connection immediately. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, that is, yeah, that is what I am working for. And, and as you say, you know, you know it when it comes through. There's a conviction there's an urgency, there's a, a certain, and it's a way, it's a way of knowing the world, and it's a way of knowing the world that our Western culture uh, so easily dismisses as sentimental or romantic, or um, it has a thousand ways of trivializing that. Yeah. Uh, and yet it does, it speaks to a part of us that we all have, and that we all know. Mm. Mm. When was your show at the Banks Gallery? Was that a um, <clears throat> four years ago, or how long oh, ago? Um, you know, how long has Jamie been uh, 
um, how long has the Banks Gallery been closed? Yeah. I mean, I was with years. him for a number of years uh, until he finally closed. Um, That's where I first saw your work, and um, it was probably, like, I've just been dabbling in visual art, um, it's, which is totally different. I'm a musician, but, it, but visual art's very different. And I can remember viewing your works and having, and other works, you know, early on before I became a, a painter, I remember feeling feeling things, you know, and you're like, is anyone else, you know, <laughs> kind of looking around? <laughs> oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. And yeah, so well, I, Jamie, Jamie has a brilliant eye and um, okay, yeah. tremendously supportive of my work and yeah. is, uh, but he's off to... Uh, off to other things. He's doing uh, Art Bank now. Yeah. So tell us just a little bit for those who are actually photographers and like to hear this stuff because I'm not going to understand much of it, but talk a little bit of shop for, for what sure. photographers might want to know what you're actually doing out there with your, your big well, giant Well, I camera. use when I'm working out in the landscape and, and for almost all of my work here, I use an 8x10 view camera, uh, which oh. takes a very large piece of film. Mm -hmm. And I do that because uh, that's the photography that I first fell in love with. I mean, Ansel is the sort of classic case that everybody knows. Um, but uh, the photographers that I first fell in love with were Edward Weston, Paul Strand, Alfred Stiglitz. And as much as I appreciate Ansel, he, he was never one of my favorite artists, but Weston and Strand seemed to have that extra dimension uh, even more so. Actually, I'll tell you a little anecdote about Ansel. He would, uh, during the class, he would come out with a box of prints that his assistants had packed. So they were reject prints and they were good prints and they were and he would open up this box of, say, 50 prints, and he would just extemporaneously talk about whatever was in the box, because his assistants would put it in there. Which was really interesting, because there were... I mean, we know Ansel for certain iconic images, but I would yes. say that he was a much better artist than the images that we are most that we most associate with him, he has his career has been shaped, um, you know, by a business manager and for the market. Um, and I saw images that I almost never see exhibited of his that I just thought were oh, just profound, but not the ones that you know, college kids would put up on their wall and go, wow, look at that, <laughs> look at that mountain. Um, I, I often think that if you get to glimpse the artist as a person, <laughs> you run the risk of the magic disappearing. But at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, especially as a young creative person, you get to see that they are flesh and bone, Yeah. right? And that, what's so special about this guy, <laughs> you know, yeah. kind of thing, like, I can do this. I think it kind of almost normalizes the possibilities for you. It takes away the hype. Like, just the idea that you stumbled out there and you were able to 
meet Ansel Adams is amazing. The fact that you were able to work in the dark room is kind of mind-blowing because <laughs> I can't imagine what you're exposed to. And then to be able to see the work that no one else sees, yeah. you know, and this is in a compressed amount of time. And you yeah. were a young, you were a young guy trying to figure this out. Like, how cool you have stories that you can share with us about Ansel Adams. That's pretty inspiring. And I don't believe that there's a whole lot of accident in life. I will say that. I always run around saying there's no such thing as a coincidence. <laughs> you know, there's a reason things happen. But how cool is it that you found yourself in that situation? And especially because, can you talk about how the technology has changed? For me, I just remember, you know, when I was in school doing photography in dark rooms with chemicals and like the little miracle that happens with the paper as it develops. I was always surprised by whatever I saw because I didn't realize it would look the way it did. But it's there's a step beyond now. Things have changed. How is that? I mean, you started out in, you know, the, one of the most famous artists at the time, a photographer's dark room. Was it hard for you to give that process up? I haven't given up. You're still in the dark room with the chemicals? Totally. Is, because an 8 by 10 of course, isn't digital. Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now I'm really, I'm sorry, I'm catching up. Yeah. I hadn't made that leap. I thought, mm. oh, now you have to do it digitally. It must be so different. No. I mean, again, as an artist, you know, it's very visceral. At least it is for me. That yeah. you want to make something and... Like we're talking on a computer screen. I don't have a visceral, you know, relationship to this computer screen. <laughs> I, I have a very visceral relationship to holding a silver or a platinum print. Mm. And when I, well, I'll, a quick story. So I, the next year I went back out to Ansel's um, of course you did. Yeah, he, was, he was really <laughs> the only one. Uh, he was the main person and really the only one at the time in the early 70s giving photography workshops. Mm -hmm. So I signed myself back up for the actual uh, photography master class for the next year. Um, a few days before that, I had gotten out there early on purpose and was walking around Carmel, California, which is where Ansel lived and where Edward Weston worked. And I was walking by the library and now I was completely in love with photography. So I was just, my antenna were up and wired for anything that I could pick up. And I walked by the library and I could see an Edward Weston print on the wall of the library. So I scooted into the library, looked at the Western prints on the wall, went over to the lady behind the card file and said, well, do you have any of Edward Weston's uh, books? And she said, well, we, we do have all of Edward Weston's books, but we also have six portfolios in the back if you'd like to look at those. <laughs> you are an, a man of opportunities. Wow. <laughs> So I spent the afternoon looking at Edward Weston Prince, and that is where more than Ansel's classes, 
more than anything, that is where I fell in love with photographic prints. And I, I, saw tone, I saw tones in those prints that just melted my soul. And I knew I wanted to do that. Were those the what you call the silver gelatin that you yes, do now? Yes, those are silver gelatin prints. Okay. Uh, very straightforward, uh, 4 by 5 and 8 by 10 contacts because Edward didn't enlarge. Um, and they were they were just luminous, and as I say, just just visceral. Um, there was particularly one was famous for his nudes. So there was I was going to say yeah. So there was yeah. this one four by five nude, you know, a small print, and it was just the picture of a woman close up with her arms crossed in front of her breasts. So sort of shoulders and arms and her breasts. And you would think as a young man that I would be riveted on those breasts, but in fact, what was just unbelievable to me was the hair on her, ar on her forearm mm -hmm. and the texture of her skin. And I just looked at that moment, oh my God. Now, I don't know why that, and, you know, who knows why we are attracted to certain textures, to certain light, to certain, but that magic that was on her arm, I said, I want to do that. I want to be able to do that. Uh, and that's, yes, so that was my, that actually was that two-week workshop was right there. Yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah. afternoon, just looking at Edward Weston Prince and taking them in, and then uh, going back home and starting to test and retest and retest and retest. And, you know, it's black and white photography. I thought I, I should be able to do this. And of course, I, I read all the chemicals that uh, tried to find out what chemicals oh. Weston was using and what papers he was using. And, um, so you start out copying and then, you know, what you love and then you go from there. Well, it's the only way you can learn, right? Mm -hmm. You have to sort of see if you can understand what that process was that got that hair, that, that whatever it was that spoke to you. And then you want to, once you master it, then you can do what you want with it. Yeah. But I, that as quickly, I was, you know, looking, of course, at Weston's work versus Adam's. It's so much more organic. And I can see that when I think of the photographs of yours I saw where, you know, those, I'm going to get it wrong, are they salt mines? Uh, salt piles. Salt piles. I salt think I, piles. I led you astray calling them mines. <laughs> yeah. That's right. In my mind, I'm saying salt flats, salt what? <laughs> you know, but it's a very, I mean, salt, what could be more mineral? And yet it's mm. such an organic, right? It's this yeah. organic form. I love it. Personally, I love that it, you know, anything that's inspired by or relates to human form, I think is, you know, that's sublime. It goes beyond. So what a lucky guy you were. What a, what a good uh, librarian was, you bumped into. I You're right. <laughs> completely, completely gifted. And, 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 that, and that's the thing for me about, that is the essence for me about a work of art is is that magic that it can transmit something right. to you that you can't put into words. That's why it's a work of art. Right. 
Uh, mm. And I've had that experience in front of a Rembrandt portrait. Mm. Um, it's not by any means just photography. Uh, Noguchi <laughs> sculptures, Brancusi oh. sculptures. Um, but a lot like Weston's work. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and it's to be able to craft something that transmits like that. That, that for me, regardless of what the camera is looking at, to be able to make that transmission through the work of art. So when you have a photograph, one of those rare ones that we referred to earlier, one that just, you look at it and you sort of, you know, feel a touch of, of, <laughs> of God in it, you know, the one that you know is a good one. What do you hope a viewer will see from it? Are you, do you try to say something or do you just hope people will take something that, as they view it? You know, this is kind of, this is interesting for me because my whole life, I, 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 I just want people to look at it. I really don't want to say anything. Ah. Um, I, because at first, the last thing I want to do is explain it. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, people like yourselves are obviously picking up on it. Um, but as I've gotten older, I do see that um, there is something to be gained by saying something. Because we're running out of time. <laughs> I feel like I look and I think, well, we got a good 30 years left. Yeah. <laughs> but the last 30 years went really quickly. Yeah. I mean, maybe we could get 40 years, you know, who knows? But, you know, you might only get 25. Right. And then I start thinking, you know, you've got to quick, you've got to, you've got to get it across because maybe, I'm not kidding. I feel like maybe enough people aren't being sort of, uh, uh, shook by the shoulder maybe they have been too busy or too distracted by the world maybe i mean you're very much i think an environmentalist in the sense that you're appreciating the natural world you're portraying it we all know it's fragile there isn't well certainly in the western world there isn't anyone alive who doesn't realize that that clock is ticking just like ours is environmentally yeah. like how can you not photographing these gorgeous scenes how can you not hope i'm going to put words in your mouth and you can smack them right out <laughs> but i'm thinking like how can you not hope that someone will see it and suddenly appreciate nature in a way that maybe they i'm going to give them a break and say like maybe the average person just hasn't had the time the luxury of the moment to realize how fragile it all is yeah um yeah and at the same time we're we're you know there's a tsunami of images and um that is true of of even uh i'm gonna say pimped up images of nature yes. you know skies that are that are intensified colors that Lower are than blue that is a great word <laughs> natural and and so 
you know, we can become disappointed in looking at nature itself if we get too used to Instagram shots that are, you know, just completely fabulous. Filtered and, and yes. dolled, dolled I mean, up. They're all wearing makeup. Not in, a, not in a, a way that I am thrilled about. Um, hmm. But yes, this is... Um, and, and also, you know, when I was young, I, I was grabbing everything that I could possibly read about, about you know, what is an artist doing, whether they were a poet or a novelist or a painter or a photographer. Mm. You know, what are they? What are they doing? What are they thinking? How are they going about this? What's driving them? How are they bringing it about? Because obviously, they're bringing about some kind of magic that I feel. How you know? How do I think about this? Because for me, it was all just groping. From and particularly back in those days in the early '70s, a lot of us really left academia behind. I did not want to go to. Uh, once I discovered something I was passionate about, I did not want to go to university or graduate school and have somebody um, drain the life out of it. Um, well, especially not when you were able to take classes with Ansel Adams or spend an afternoon in a library <clears throat> touching the work of, you know, someone who's going to have more meaning to you than maybe, you know, a yeah. mediocre professor. I think, yeah, you. there are a few people that are gifted. Like, they're just, you're given the gift of the, they always say the teacher shows up when the student's ready. I don't know if that's true. But if you have the right thing in front of you at the time, then you need it. I mean, you were young and and hungry. What, what an opportunity. Do you teach now? I teach, but I don't teach photography. I... <laughs> I mean, this More. sort of this, <laughs> this sort is going to go jumps, circle. <laughs> yeah, this sort of jumps to uh, Peru. We should probably go. Fill yeah, that. before we go to Peru, can we get you the, to how you came to the seacoast and what brought you to the seacoast before you went to Peru? Is yes, that right. Yes. Where were you okay. born? Uh, I was born in Detroit, but I grew up in Connecticut and uh, Long Island. Okay. <sighs> and I kicked around for a while, and then uh, my brother was uh, house-sitting a house for a couple of years. He was a salesman, and he was house-sitting a house uh, down in Rye Beach for a family that lived on Long Island, and they used it in the summer. And so uh, he said, come on out and visit me. So I, I came out and I visited him, and we drove up the coast um, to Portsmouth for lunch one day, and again, this is 1985. I mean, the coast was kind of abandoned. You know, obviously there yeah. were houses there, but it was not, nobody was there. And here was the great Atlantic Ocean and all these rocks, you know, particularly those rocks there by Wallace Sands, where you could just get out of the car and just like, here it is. I was, I was... I was just wow. And had you Again, already had you already realized in your life your attachment to rocks, your connection before you did, yes before that I moment. almost became a geologist okay. in uh, college. Okay, there was always something about rocks. Okay. Again, something that's very hard even now to put into words. Yeah. 
but in the same way that people feel drawn to, I don't know, I had a brother who was in love with birds. Uh, I have a niece who loves horses. Um, people love gardening. You know, we have things that call to us in the natural world mm -hmm. that we intuitively and instinctively have an ability to connect to. And for mm -hmm. me, it was always uh, nature in general, but stones in particular. So, so that called you up here. <laughs> what? Yes. So, so again, it was just sheer happenstance that I came to visit my brother. And I looked at this and, uh, you know, in a couple of days, I looked around and I thought, Hortzman, okay, yeah, this works. Uh, I didn't want to be, I wanted to be close to cultural centers like New York and Boston, uh, but mm -hmm. I also wanted access to wild nature. Mm -hmm. And that wildness, that untamed wildness is, is right there on our coast. You know, you get out of the car and those rocks look exactly the same way they looked, you know, a thousand years ago. Yeah. Um, those rocks are older than Stonehenge or any other man-created ancient temple on the planet. Hmm. Um, that's the real deal. And that's the real ocean. Um, so to have that opportunity to be able to lift my heavy camera out of the car <laughs> walk 20 or 30 feet and have access to that that was heaven yeah. and I was looking for a place and I wasn't even quite sure I was aware I was looking as a writer Thoreau was always my mm -hmm. big inspiration and what I loved about Thoreau was that he could take the most ordinary plant or stick or small event around Walden Pond and in a few sentences expand that into some kind of cosmic epiphany. So right. there was that the, the physical reality and that other dimension that he was able to open up. And that's, that was magic for me. And that's what I wanted to be able to do with my photographs. And so the coast of New Hampshire became my Walden for me. Yeah, those are stunning. Those photographs are just, just amazing. And I could just spend as much time as I wanted down there. So I, I, I waited on tables at night and spent my days and every hour I could um, trying to photograph, trying to learn nice. how to photograph. Okay, so from those rocks, what got you interested in the rocks in Peru? So, for about 15 years, I, uh, you know, I did other photography, uh, of course, um, but for 15 years, I worked very methodically and committedly um, with that coast. And mm -hmm. during that time, I started to have other kinds of experiences with the rocks, with the weather, feeling presences, feeling alivenesses down there, feeling spirits. Um, and the sense of nature being alive, a present, aware, conscious in its way, just kept intensifying. But I 
I, other than photographing, I didn't quite know what to do with it. And yet the rocks seemed to, to have like an urgency about them. And I would bring them to the studio and photograph them. And, you know, that worked to some degree. Meantime, I was reading about other artists that work with rocks, but particularly trying to find some context for this aliveness, I was reading about shamanism. And of course, all indigenous cultures in the world, um, and pretty much, I, I'm using shamanism in a very broad and generalized way, not a technical way. Um, all indigenous cultures see nature as conscious and alive, as aware, as responsive. Um, and so while I was reading about these cultures and their beliefs and their experiences, which mirrored some of my experiences, but I thought, well, I'm, I'm never going to meet these people. <laughs> I'm going to meet these people. <laughs> um, and then one day, everything changed. I was walking around Portsmouth on a Friday afternoon in the fall of 1997, and a lady who I didn't know very well but had seen around um, called me over because she had she was showing some snapshots to a friend of hers, and she said, "Carl, you're a photographer. Come on over, take a look at these." And I looked at them. And they were clearly um, what I assumed were shamans and shamanesses and colorful ponchos high in the mountains somewhere. And I turned to her and I said, these are shamans, right? She goes, yes, I just got back from Peru and we got initiated at 15,000 feet and they work with stones. They work with stones. And then you married her. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Hillary. Oh, it wasn't uh, Hillary. Okay. No. So um, I took a workshop here in the States immediately after that and heard about this tribe in the mountains of uh, the Peruvian Andes that had just been discovered in 1949. Uh, because they live so far up at elevations between 13 to 16,000 feet. Uh, they were very isolated. Uh, but Very uh, strong lungs. Yeah. Yes, yes, well, yes. Um, they were discovered by an anthropologist um, in 1949, and then the first expedition went up in, like, I think, 1954. So my point about all that is that um, because of their isolation, they had and have retained their ancient way of viewing the world. Mm -hmm. For them, it's of course not ancient, it's just the way they view the world. That's their traditional culture. Um, and the other thing I'll say about shamanic cultures is that every indigenous culture works with the spirits of the land that they're in. Uh -huh. So, if you're in the jungle, then what you're working with is plants or the Amazon River. Uh, if you're in the mountains, what do you have? You have mountains, you have rocks, you have stars. Of course, there are animals and things like that, but 
that's their world. That's the world that they have over generations and eons developed a profound relationship. So the next spring, uh, I joined a trip that was going up to meet with these, uh, with the shamans of this uh, tribe, and it's called the Kero tribe, Q-E-R-O. And I thought it would be a one-off trip because I was so taken away by the teachings I was getting in the States that I just felt like, okay, I just need to go touch this land where these teachings are coming from. So I have some visceral uh, relationship to these teachings. They're not just, you know, sort of abstract. Uh, well, uh, I have been back in the last 22 years. I've been back 35 times. Wow. At least I've lost count really. Uh, I just fell madly in love. Um, <gasps> and started to learn how they saw the world. And specifically, I mean, this gets into, as I'm having these experiences out here on the coast and with nature, I'm realizing that my culture, my Western culture, does not talk about this, does not take this seriously. So I am quite convinced that the experiences that I'm having are real and legitimate, and yet my culture, which is taking over the world, does not acknowledge these. So there's a huge disconnect. Mm. Um, something's something's wrong. So did uh, you start to to recognize that uh, before you went to Peru, or was yes. it? Oh yeah. So it was. It was. Yeah. You were realizing. Um. Yes, because I, as I read these books on indigenous cultures, I could see that their view of the world was just very, very different. Right, right. And uh, there you are standing on the rocks, you know, of the, the Abenaki. And, yeah. you know, and did you ever go through sort of a period? I mean, I've done this because I've grown up my whole life going to Rye Beach. And I, I've had that feeling, you know, just standing there thinking, yeah, we had an indigenous people running all over these rocks, just like, just like you go to see them in Peru, but there's this sense of mourning to feel, you know, what are what we are now, and how in such a short time, just just our country is really so young. Two hundred years, we've just changed so radically from being able to connect to nature in a way that that, that was just every day to these yes. people, and and it's gone. Yes, it's just gone. And I think as artists, we definitely have, you know, whether we know how to verbalize it or not, I think we're trying to do something like that in our work. We're trying to bring a response to people, or maybe maybe as we get older, like Margaret says, we are trying to say something, you know, that trying to wake up our culture to, uh, what are we doing? Tell us. Uh, well, I, 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 yes to all of that. Yes. Um, I do think that we are trusting our intuitive call our our love i mean mm. why are we down there spending that kind of time um i mean basically nobody's paying us to do that we're doing that out of love out of some kind of call and response nature is nature is calling us mm. and some of us hear that call well i can say for myself it's been a slow process 
being so busy as a young mother, I felt it. I, I tried to get my kids out there, but there was just no time to really think about it and process it um, like I've had in the last 10 years since they've all been gone, you know. So to me, I just attribute it to age, but you found it at such a young age, you know. Um, it's just, it's, a, it's something that takes a lot of slowing down and it happens. It does. It happens slowly for me anyway. I, I completely agree. And the way I think about my experience down at the beach, as I said, it took 15 years before I went to Peru. 15 years of paying, right. you know, putting in my time there. And my feeling now is that it's like the rocks... And the spirit of that place said, okay, you put in 15 years. That's a, you know, that's a reasonable apprenticeship. <laughs> now we're going to send you to the, um, to the people who really can teach you directly yeah. about uh, what's going on with the stones, what's possible with the stones. Um, it does take time. It takes time. Mm. So... Margaret was admiring your background. Go ahead, Margaret. Go on. We see a lot of rocks there, so you're going to have to tell yep. us. <laughs> so, well, yeah. <laughs> this is your, your current project, am I right? With, yes. Through the grant. So, so I, I, what I, what I, well, just to complete with the Peru aspect. Yeah. So I was looking for the elders who had come of age before being touched by uh, in any significant way by Western culture. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know, without the imprint of Western culture, how do you see the world? How does it work? How does it That's show up question. for you? How do you feel it? How do you know it? Mm -hmm. um, it's a really big... Hmm? Yeah. You're, you're asking... Well, I'm, I'm going to start with the practical question, which is, do you speak Spanish? Were they speaking Spanish? They speak what Quechua. The language? They speak Quechua. So, so, so I, again, I was very fortunate that there was a young man who was 18 years old um, who had been hired to be the translator on the trip. Okay. Um, he has become a lifelong friend now. As a matter of fact, his 41st birthday was yesterday. <laughs> oh. And he was taught by, he was not Kero, he was from just outside of Cusco. And he was taught uh, shamanically by his grandfather. He had been, uh, his name is Puma, and he had been struck by lightning when he was six. Which is a classic... Um, sign of initiation. So his grandfather started teaching him in secret, even from his parents. Ooh. So by the time he was 18, uh, he had been, you know, well-schooled by his grandfather, but obviously was still young. Um, and, but I did meet with these elders and kept going back to learn yeah. both from Puma and from his grandfather and from these elders higher up in the mountains, um, just how they saw the world. 
and that has shaped my life for the last 22 years. What do you think they thought you were trying to learn from them? What did they think of you? This young Good. man shows up with questions. Well, I, you know, I, I was almost 50 at the time. So, oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So my life at 50 took this sharp left turn. Sure did. Um, you know, they're seers, so they can mm. see you. <laughs> they can see you. Yeah. Better than you can see yourself in some ways. Um, boy, this is a, this is a story. <laughs> All right. So I guess I'll tell you the story and then you'll do whatever you do with it. And okay. Of the, of the, let's have it. Hey, Hey, maybe this is one of those coincidences. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it is. It is one of those coincidences. <laughs> so, um, and I've, I've just been actually writing an article about this, so it's something that I, that I have rarely shared in public, uh, just because it's precious to me. Mm -hmm. So we arrive um, in this village in the middle of a snowstorm. Uh, we've come over the continental divide in the snowstorm. Uh, the altitude is crushing. Yeah. Uh, for me, I, I didn't spend enough time acclimating. Oh, boy. Um, finally, we get to bed in our sleeping bags. I wake up the next morning. I'm feeling okay. Um, there's snow, eight inches of snow all over everything. And I get up very early and start to get out of my sleeping bag and start wandering around just to, like, take this in. Well... This village that we're in is stone huts, huts, thatched roofs, dirt floors, little pathways. It's the 15th century. <laughs> this is long before cell phones. Um, it's shocking. And I'm just trying to take it in. I'm sitting on a rock by a little stream in the middle of the village, and all of a sudden I get this feeling which I had had numerous times uh, on the coast. So I knew to listen to it, that the feeling was that there was a stone out there by the stream in front of me. That was for me. Um, so I got up and I walked over to the stream and I looked down and sure enough, there was the stone. Of course, there's, there's you know, thousands of stones sitting by this little rocky stream, but there's this stone. And I pick it up and I go, yeah, this is the one. Later that morning, we finally meet for the first time with the three shamanic elders that we're working with and Puma, the translator. And when there's a pause in the conversation and there's a little break and I go up to Puma, who is trilingual, he can speak English, Spanish, and Quechua. And I say, Puma, could you ask them um, what, they, what they feel about this stone? Uh, if, if you have a chance. And so he goes, yeah, sure, of course. So he hands the stone to the three shamans. The three shamans like collapse on the, sh on the stone and they, 
they lean over and they're looking at it and they're handing it over to each other and they're pointing out little nicks and crannies on the stone. And uh, each has an opinion, obviously, talking away in Quechua. And um, finally, Puma turns to me and he says, well, they think it's a really good stone, Carl. Um, it's a stone that uh, you should put in your mesa. Your mesa is your sort of sacred bundle of stones. It's like your altar, your portable altar, uh, which I had learned about in the States before I went. And so uh, the instructions from the shamans were to open my mesa, push the stones that I had out to the edges and put this one into the center because it was the, uh, it was a great stone for distributing energy. It was kind of in the shape of a triangle. And then to bring the other stones in around it as it would distribute the energies. So I said, that's, that's great. Thank you very much. Um, but how do I work with it? And he said, well, you take the stones in your mesa, you push them out to the side, you put this one in the center, you bring the other ones back in around it. And I go, okay but how do i work with it <laughs> yeah so you can see where this is going <laughs> yeah finally the head shaman picks it up in his hand and he points at it with his crooked finger and he looks me in the eyes and he says you believe in it without doubt and in that moment all my questions just you know it was one of those moments where everything got very still for me and that was, that was the teaching for that trip. That was literally meeting the wise men on the mountain hmm. and being gifted with the piece of knowledge that I particularly needed. Because being a Westerner, I have a lot of doubt about the fact that the stones are talking. Sure. I mean, I feel it. I know it. And I have a Western mind that is constantly chattering away. So being able to invest it in that way and to work with it without doubt, that opened a portal for me. Hmm. So where's your rock now? Yeah, that's what I thought. Sitting on my altar. <laughs> I was so, hoping you would nod and point. I know, right, right, <laughs> right, right there. here. Right. Okay. So yeah. tell us about your work now. That How are you doing this in the studio? So, as I said, I started photographing the stones in the studio uh, back in the 90s. And I do have some images that are actually in the show uh, up at UNH now for the grant mm -hmm. uh, that I'm very happy with. But they were extremely hard to do. Yeah, and I wonder why would you do it in the studio versus out in nature? Is well, I did do it out in nature, and I did a whole series of stones out in nature that I would find and set up mm -hmm. um, vertically in the landscape. Um, and so I have a body of work of those, and then I would take them down because oftentimes they were big stones and you didn't want them you know, falling on anybody. Or Plus, I didn't want to disturb the landscape. Mm -hmm. uh, it annoys me when I see <laughs> these little piles of stones in the landscape. I mean, I get it. I get the impulse. 
uh, and there's one particular turnout out, out there by Ordiorn where everybody seems oh, to go. Yes, and so it's like hundreds I've surrendered of them. that that piece of land to those who want to build those things. <laughs> Stay there. <laughs> Stay there. But when I walk out to the land, and what I would think that most everybody else feels is you want to see that land yeah. naked the way it was, natural. Mm. I don't want to see your graffiti, and I don't want to see your piles of stones. Mm. If you want to make a pile of stones, wonderful. You know, take a snapshot and then dismantle it. Leave, it for, leave that space open for the next person. Yeah. Um, that's my little thing on that. So in any case, but here's the thing about the stones. The it was both the landscape and the stones, but also the individual stones seemed to be almost like hieroglyphs. Like that stone was like one word in a poem and I needed to put it together with other stones so that I could make the whole poem. Mm -hmm. uh. I don't know the other way to describe it, but I felt like I needed uh. to to focus on individual stones or, or groups of stones. Groups. Yeah. And that's, that's different. And I f personally found that very difficult. And I poured, you know, again, being a young man, being, uh, being ambitious, being, you know, wanting to fulfill my, my, my dreams for this body of work, I just poured more and more and more energy into it, thinking that that would overcome many <laughs> obstacles. But we all know there are certain obstacles that that's just not the way. Uh, more effort is not necessarily the way. Right. You can't force it. You can't. Right? We try to force so much right. when we're and yeah. hurry it when we're younger. Um, are there any rocks in the world that you are longing to see? I know that's a hard question now that no one can travel, but no. the whole time you've been yeah. talking, I've been thinking about, you know, uh, Ayers Rock, Uluru, in the largest rock in the world in Australia. You know, the aboriginals are so tied to rock. The aboriginals have this deep, deep, deep in their traditions, and I've, I've read about them. I haven't been to Australia, but they, they have wonderful magical traditions around stones. Yeah. Um, the only, and I have spent a lot of time going around Europe, and I went to South Africa to work with a very specific shaman in South Africa a couple of times. Regardless of the actual protocol of the vision quest, all indigenous cultures know what they know by connecting directly to the spirit of the universe whether that's a mountain, a stone, a star, a river, a lake, an ocean, they know that there is something there to communicate with. We, we don't open, we don't even think to open that door because we don't think there's anything on the other side of the door. That's what our culture tells us. Well, I like what you quoted too. You said, um, you, as Carl explains, there are things we all know but dismiss because we just doubt ourselves, right? Yes. And, and this is our condition. It's taken you, you say, it's taken me years to trust what I know. And, and I feel like that's, I think a lot of people are on that path the more that we discuss mm. these things and become more aware. Uh, I think there is a huge movement 
I, I know there's a huge movement that, you know, even in the New York Times now, you see articles about how alive nature is and how it communicates in ways that we didn't know 20 years ago. Trees, plants, this is going on in biology, in physics, mm. in philosophy, in, um, yeah, this is, this is going on broadly. People are waking up to the indigenous traditions all over the world. Yeah. Um, this is a this is a big movement and eventually it will break out into the open even more but it, it already is breaking out into the open yeah. so my feeling is that this is something that the earth itself is now um wanting and pushing forward and it's coming through every discipline i can think of the arts the sciences everything I'm even um, reading a book right now on how to group my house plants because they communicate. They do. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I mean, I communicate with them. I, I sit there and, <laughs> and I would never tell even my kids that. They'd be like, okay, mom. It's I know, but that's, but, but everybody, not, obviously <laughs> not everybody, but, but this is, this is, this is instinctive to humanity. Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> don't you think one of the real uh, rubs about this is that the ability to commune with nature right now in the Western world is um, so often not av available to the poor? You know, we have people that are living in poverty in cities, and their day is literally about fast survival um, you know you look at it at the quality of food available in the inner cities parks not being used until quarantine you know suddenly I can speak to Massachusetts you know our parks and open spaces were overrun because if people had the means to get to them they were there um, but I think what a shame it is that it's almost a, a class privilege that we can take the time to think about this. It's, it's such a luxury and it, it, I, I feel like it's a luxury. I mean, yes, indigenous peoples all over the world are probably not victim to Western, you know, industrialization and growth and speed and a different kind of poverty, poverty of we have a poverty of our, our means and also of our souls for a lot of people. And yet, I, I know that your people at the top of the mountain in Peru, money was not the object at the end of the day or week. Their life is a different way. But I do think I have faith in the, the younger generation because I feel like my kids are so tuned in to waste and what we've done to the planet and what they can do to improve the planet. Um, they donate their time, their conversation, and, and their money to causes that they think are important. And I, I think that's a great thing. We're all, I'm rooting for that. I'm hoping that that continues. But I do worry about the millions and millions of people who can't even... Bro this thought is a luxury to their day. You know, isn't it a shame that yeah, they're yeah. just on survival mode yeah. at such a low level? Yeah. L let me say know. a little bit about that. 
So in Peru and in South Africa, when the traditional culture is intact, people may be very poor, but there is a Mm. community net. Everybody is held in the community. The poorest people, the orphans, everybody is held in the community. So that fabric keeps them healthy and strong. Um, They're supportive. Where that fabric tears is when people, again, my experience of this has been South Africa and Peru, people leave the community and go to the big city, whether it's Lima or Johannesburg or Cape Town, to get a job in the Western culture. And then they lose the job or the job pays almost no money. And, you know, pretty soon they're living in tar paper shacks by the airport. And that that um, community that did support them is, you know, a long way away. And now they're mm-hmm. facing the kind of grinding poverty um, courtesy of Western culture. Yeah. Um, and I know you hear about this all the time in, uh, also in Australia, it's a huge problem. Um, so yes, I, I agree with you. It's, it's very hard to um, A, have the time and B, have the uh, health in your body if you're not eating well mm-hmm. um, in this culture to, I, I, I agree, <laughs> I, I, I agree. So the hope is, this is, I'm going to take this back full circle now. The hope is that by raising awareness, and maybe that's just by starting the conversation, and I think that does happen through art and sculpture and photography and experiences in the natural world, that those people... I'm thinking of my kids, of means, of some means, maybe that continues to be like the goal shifts. Maybe art influences what they do with their time and money and, and energy to, and I don't know what I want. I want to leave the indigenous intact cultures alone. I do, but I sort of think, I think at the end of the day, right, we're going to, we want, we want to solve for disease and do what we can to help people who need it. But we also have to be willing to take from those cultures the things that they can teach us, maybe about the way we live our lives. I mean, there's got to be a give and take and some sort of symbiotic um, growth really there. And I don't know how you open that door. I think art can help open that door because I think it raises awareness. I think but that that also risks ruining it. What happens if, look what happened to Machu Picchu. Everybody wanted to get on a tour and go up to Machu Picchu. Mm-hmm. Is that a good thing? Probably mm-hmm. not for Machu Picchu at the end of the day. I mean, where does this, where does this end on a higher level? Mm-hmm. And what can an, art, an artist, an individual do that's a positive force? Mm-hmm. I mean, We're, your life seems good. You seem to be a man who's kind of in, centered inside himself. But that's not everyone else's goal. And I don't know how we shift that focus. Maybe. I, I, I think that, you know, oh boy, this is a, this is a, 
this is a big conversation. This is a pandemic. Um, I didn't think we were going to go here. Well, <laughs> you've well, inspired I mean, me. I'm sorry. But, but, it, but really, it is the conversation. Yeah. This is the, conversation. the only conversation. So, because we're going to be dead in 30 years. Right. So <laughs> here's, the, here's the way I, I, I track these things now. So yes. just in the time since, say, I graduated from college in 1971, are you aware of the Cast Carlos Castaneda books? Are you kidding? Of course. <laughs> so, so in 1971, what? We had Carlos Castaneda and maybe two other authors talking about shamanism, uh, perceptual states, ways of experiencing the world that were outside the Western box. Two or three authors. I'm sure there were some other people, but, you know, not to the general public and not on Amazon because we didn't have an Amazon. So from that to, mm -hmm. if I go to Amazon now, I cannot buy all the books that are coming out on quote-unquote shamanism. Right. Mm. Now, 10 years ago, maybe I could have kept up. So the explosion <laughs> in this kind of knowledge and interest is an explosion. Um, so I track this from what? We just had the 51st anniversary of, or the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. This is how these things start. So there's a thing that happens in academia, but there's a thing that happens in popular culture Look at the, I'm, I'm jumping around here a little bit. Look at Harry Potter, look at Lord of the Rings. Those are popular culture saying the same thing. They're art. Mm -hmm. Kids are reading that stuff and it is going in like, that's, it is. that, that is, is without going to the mountains of Peru, that's downloading these sensibilities. Mm. Um, as I said, um, Earth Day, 50 years ago. So we see these progressions moving. The kids in school, I mean, was I ever taught, were you ever taught about the, the ecology of the world and, and how we're polluting it when we were kids? Of course not. Yeah. No. Now our kids know more than we do. Yeah. yeah. So it comes with the lunch basket now. And I can't tell um, if it's going so much faster or if I'm just becoming so much more aware. No, it's both. <laughs> Okay. It's both, and that's the way cultures change. So yeah. if we look at how cultures have changed, I mean, you know, there are wonderful books written on how cultures have radically changed, like Copernicus saying, you know, guess what? The earth is not the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. It's the sun, or our Milky Way. And it takes a while for these things to sort of get digested in the and included in the culture. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Descartes and uh, Francis Bacon and the scientific uh, method. Those right. things took years and years and years and years and years and decades and centuries to become refined and to become sort of the accepted way of things. So this is the process. And the big one this century or last century, a hundred years ago, is quantum physics. Mm -hmm. So they start looking into quantum physics and they discover, oh my gosh, <laughs> consciousness and matter are somehow connected. How is that possible? 
because of course they're looking at it through the lens of classic Western culture. And so ever since quantum physics, we, this revolution has started for real because now the scientists know, like you listen to people like Einstein and Max Planck, uh, the people who originated, you know, made the initial discoveries. Uh, I've got a quote around here by uh, Max Planck that uh, consciousness is what is fundamental, not matter. Now, this is, where, this is where every indigenous culture is. It's consciousness right. that is fundamental. Some indescribable awareness is fundamental and matter emerges from that. Whereas in the classical Western frame of things, consciousness emerges out of complexity. What a lot of foolishness. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, that is going to be proved to be just foolishness. Time gives me solace. Yeah. I'm, I'm willing to, like, that, I understand. Like, change does take time, and it's slow. I'm worried about how quickly, you know, will the destruction of the environment outpace us? I hope not. I sincerely hope not. I have a friend who has a, she's a scientist of sorts. She's a doctor, and she has a strong um, belief that, uh, when I was bemoaning a year ago, COVID and quarantine, she said to me, just think of it this way, the earth burped. The earth needed a chance and we have now given it, it because we've been forced to, this chance to just stop and repair a little bit. Mm-hmm. And she said, and yes, population will drop and all these other things will happen. And she's like, at the end of the day, we are meaningless, but the earth will go on. <laughs> and I think, well, okay, you know, maybe it, it took the natural world to make us stop. And all right, you know, we're, we'll get through this, at least most of us will, and see where it goes. But it's it's fascinating to me that your approach is, I don't want to say Eastern, because that's not correct. Here you have this philosophy of living, and you are creating art that is somehow integrates this, because, you know, it's clearly part of who you are, and whether it's the rocks or the natural forms, you are taking an artistic step in terms of showing it to the world, right? You're taking a moment, an an image, and you're showing it. And when I asked you earlier, what is it you hope people take away from it? Your response was, you just want them to look at it. I mean, the beauty of that is that the the interaction starts with the individual, the artist. I'm going to say artist. Mm-hmm. You kind of do your thing, make your image, make your art, put it on the wall. The viewer sees it and takes whatever they will from it. In, in your case, I'm hoping they're going to extract a little of that appreciation for the soul of the the object the landscape, the person, whatever, and then it sort of it rolls on. Who knows how that influences what goes forward? But I think that that's a universal for every artist that ever does anything that's, I mean, if it's a sculpture, they're walking around it, but, you know, anything that's viewed, you just hope that a little bit of the, of the divine, the inspiration that you saw continues through. I mean, there's this chain and this wave and it ties very much into this appreciation of 
life and whatever all that means. I mean, it's it's this is heady stuff, and I yeah. and to me, this is the difference between a piece of art that resonates and one that doesn't, because if that germ of sort of the divine, the the spirit, the soul, whatever you want to call it, if there isn't something more than just paint on paper or you know a photographic image that's just printed and on wall it's the difference it's like what is art art is higher than and maybe this is like just the the tiniest glimpse into what infuses it that makes it more than just a 3d graphic that people look at i don't know we're asking a lot of it but yeah well but but look how again the potential power of of art is just is just so tremendous yeah um, if you reduce it to say a photograph, then hmm, you know maybe it doesn't look like much. But look what that that Weston photograph did for me. It changed my life. Exactly, changed your life. I had the same experience looking at a Rembrandt portrait in Amsterdam when I was a young man. Changed my life, the direction of my life. Now. And other people see, you know, I'll, I'll bet you most scientists that you ask, they were fascinated by something, I don't know, in nature if they're a biologist, mm. you know, or, or they saw a plant or they saw an animal and they started to wonder. And they, you know, they, we all have the opportunity, I think, for these moments of awakening for that thing that wants to wake up in us. Yeah. And then it's a question of, can we, will we, and do we pursue it and unpack it? Yeah, I, th- I think every bring artist... bring that to life. Every artist is mm. saying something. I've met artists who say, no, I'm not out to say anything, but your experiences are, you know, you're out there, and every, every brushstroke I'm going to put down is, is a representation of my experiences, my spirit, my soul, my consciousness, and I, I think the one word that comes to mind when I look at your work is that it does raise everybody's consciousness to, you know, you're, you're opening yourself to say, what, what's here that I, that I don't maybe see in other people's work. It's just true, Carl. I mean, you can't look at your work and not feel that there's more there. So whether oh, you're saying, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. I yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I, but yeah, but I, I think that people um, maybe that go at it too deeply, like, Here's my brush, and I'm gonna make this statement. You know that? I think I've done that too, and that's not. I've done that too, <laughs> of course. There, there's nothing there. <laughs> it's when I. It's kind of um, a flow, and I think you talked about it a little bit when you were talking about photographing the salt piles in Portsmouth and waiting for the the right moment, and and also that that the image is upside down, so you're viewing mm. it upside down, not as we you know see. And I, I think that just, I don't know, just waiting for that. As Margaret described earlier, there are some paintings that just happen on their own. Yes. And those, those are when what, what we're feeling uh, through the world and experiencing or connecting to on a level that we can't articulate. We just have to put down. Yeah. There, there's an idea in... Um, in healing and in, in uh, I don't know what we would call maybe alternative healing or indigenous healing of becoming the hollow bone mm. where that 
spirit, that energy, that chi, whatever you want to call it, comes through you. One of the healers in Peru said to me, Carl, you don't do it, but it doesn't happen without you. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. So you're like the hollow bone. You have to show up. You make the connection. It's like you're the enzyme that makes the flow happen. The connect, yeah. Like that. So no, not everyone can afford or cares to go out and spend endless hours at the beach or in the salt piles. <sighs> but that work of art can act as that hollow bone to bring something through. Hmm. It's certainly a lot to think about, isn't it? It is. So Carl, you um, you have some works in some pretty major places here. You've got some works in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, the Smithsonian, the Courier Museum, um, and across Europe and South America. Yeah. These, these are great things, but what to you is success as, as an oh, artist? Um, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's always about the next body of work. Ah. Um, That's great. And, I like that answer a lot. <laughs> It's, it's that and, and, and being, um, being, being in that space to be able to work. Hmm. I mean, that's such a gift, such a privilege, such a wonderful way to, to, to live one's life. Yeah. Uh, to be able to be in touch with those things you feel deeply about and live in that zone have those experiences and bring to fruition something out of that. Mm -hmm. You know, why do we read poetry? Why do we read novels? Why do we go to movies? Um, we love doing it. We love making it. And if we're lucky, something comes out of it um, for the world. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that, I think it's, a, it's, it's like a two, it's, it's like left foot, right foot. I, I feel like I was, who, I'm not sure I want this quoted. Um, <laughs> I feel like I was chosen, but chosen is the wrong word. Uh, <laughs> okay. But that in that moment, standing in front of nature, when nature opened to me and I chose photography at the same time. It was like an opportunity was open to me. This is the wrong word. Um, you opened yourself. So I, I think I, the opportunity is open, open to everybody, but you but, open. But then you have to, to step receive. Through. Yeah, okay. Um, there's, a, there's a very well-known concept in the ancient Greek world called the daemon, which has been badly... Um, distorted, you know, eventually as the demon. But the daemon is that spirit that comes into you that is your mission. Huh. And that you feel driven by. And that might be for a brain surgeon. That might be for a mother. I mean, my daughter is a mother. Huh. I mean, that's her. And my mother was a mother. That was like 
their fulfillment. They're like, yeah. I mean, yes, they did other things, but that's what they wanted to do. That's what they felt able to do. Yeah. Um, And that's what they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As it was. (laughs) So, you know, to be able to find your calling or your calling to find you, maybe that's a better way to say it. Uh, That's that's a gift. Yeah. And so what do you do with your teaching? Just if you can tell us briefly, because I know it's quite unique. So after I had been studying shamanism for a number of years, uh, all of my teachers kept pushing me to teach. And I really did not want to teach. I was learning this because I wanted to be closer to nature. I wanted to understand how the world worked. Obviously, Western culture was not the whole answer by any means. And I just wanted to be an artist. I just want, I just want to photograph. But all my shamanic teachers kept saying, are you teaching yet, Carl? Are you teaching yet? Finally, interesting. I had a, um, somebody introduced me to a young lady from Denmark who was at that point in her life, we're in her late 20s, where she was searching for herself and she was in the corporate world and she was on her way to Peru, um, which is why she got introduced to me. And so I started um, coaching her to the degree that I could over the phone. And she went to Peru and had amazing opening experiences. And I continued coaching her over the phone when she got back. And one day she said, Carl, why don't you come on over here and teach a workshop? And I always consider these to be sort of signs from somewhere Mm -hmm. else, you know, from the powers that know more than I do. Synchronicities, as you were saying. Um, and I said, well, you know, fine. Um, you set it up and I'll, I'll show up if you get enough people. And so she did. And I taught that first workshop. I think it was 2004. And in that workshop was uh, a fellow who I had known from years before. So he was a, a friend of mine and he had become the head corporate coach for a um, coaching company over in Europe that coached really anybody but corporations, professionals, uh, you know, in, in, you know, skills, human skills, how to make things work, many different dimensions. And so at the end of the workshop, he said, Carl, that was, that was fabulous. Uh, I'd really like you to come give that workshop um, to my coaching company. <laughs> and I thought, oh. I'm not going to do that. I mean, we're not going to be shaking rattles and burning incense. And uh, so uh, I went back home and that's when I really started digging into quantum physics because of course we view in the same way in the middle ages, uh, everybody believed the Catholic church in Europe, you know, that, that was the authority. And they said it was like this and we go, well, Okay, if you say so. In the same way, we accept what the scientists tell us is real. So that's just baked into our culture. Mm -hmm. So if I was going to be addressing business people, men and women, um, I was going to have to meet them on their ground. So, and the fact is that quantum physics is extremely weird and it pretty well tracks with um, the spiritual traditions of 
the Upanishads and the Hindu culture and the indigenous cultures of the world. That is that the world is alive in dimensions that we in Western culture are ignorant of. And we all know it. We dream. We have profound synchronicities. We know who's calling on the phone sometimes. We have all of these anomalous experiences that as citizens of Western culture, we just kind of tuck to the back of our head and don't attend too much. So I, I wanted to reintroduce them to the magic of the world, that the world is inherently magic. The world is inherently mysterious and we are part of that. Our psyche mm. part of that. And our ancestors also believed exactly this. I keep talking about indigenous cultures, but those are our ancestors. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, that's us. It's only the last 350 years that we have this quote unquote Western culture. Now, of course, it's more complex than that. So uh, I would slowly work them into uh, exploring their different perceptual states. So for instance, your dreams, the hypnagogic state when you're just drifting off, Mm -hmm. When you're just waking up, uh, all cultures have explored that to great advantage, that things are very fluid there. Things are available to you that are there that are not available to you when you're in your rational, logical mind. You know, when we're in our rational, logical mind after we've woken up, it's very hard to remember that dream because it exists on a different wavelength. Yeah. As human beings, we are built yeah. to function on many different wavelengths. You know, we smoke cigarettes. We maybe smoke marijuana. We drink alcohol. We, we run to exhaustion and feel that runner's high. We are constantly shifting our perceptual states. But we do it passively. We do it mostly unconsciously yeah unaware whereas traditional cultures do it consciously hmm. fasting dieting a particular food there are you know i could go on and list the different ways in which we can shift our perceptual state and different aspects of the world become available to us we privilege in western culture we privilege rational logical focused thinking it's like that little donut hole that's right in front of your head. But if you're out hunting in the woods, you become peripherally aware. Where did that sound come from? Was it a natural sound or was it the footfall of a deer? Or again, if you're in war, your, that, your perceptual abilities just explode out because your survival depends upon it. What if we did that when we walk out on the beach? on a calm day. What else is speaking to me that can't get through because I'm busy talking to myself in my head? All that noise, yeah. I mean, yoga. Yoga is a practice from an indigenous culture. Eastern meditation is a practice from an indigenous culture. Mm. All of this is, is, you know, it's a worldwide culture now, so we're absorbing all of this. So what I would be teaching them is to re 
animate themselves, reanimate the world, start using different channels. Like this contract comes into your office. It sits on the desk. Uh, the three of you have a uh, meeting about it. Looks pretty good. One guy in the meeting goes, yeah, it looks good, but I got a funny feeling about it. Well, then I would say you better start turning up the volume on that. Hmm. In indigenous culture, you would go to the shaman and you would get a divination. What's, yeah. what's behind this contract? You know, so we are constantly using, you know, you walk into a, a, a party with a room full of people. Your intuitive awareness is feeling into that room. Who's safe? Who's attractive? Who's annoying? Who do I want to avoid? Do I want to stay? Do I want to go? All of that is our natural knowing. So all of my practices, whatever they were, and I would give them all kinds of practices that I'd learned over the years, was basically to get them in touch with their natural knowing and to trust it. The more you trust it, the more it responds. The more it responds, the more you trust it. The more you trust it, the more it responds. And pretty soon the world is this alive vibrating thing that you're feeling your way through. You know, the other classic example is a mother in the house with a couple of kids. Mm. She's working in the kitchen, but she knows what Johnny is doing up in the bedroom. That's right. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, just expand that to your business, your, you know, just, that's it. Mm. We are aware we are transmitters and receivers mm-hmm. of profound subtlety. Yeah. Yeah. I know from my husband working in the corporate world, and he is quite aware, very much more aware than I was when I met him, of everything, people, surroundings, and, and just an, um, a master negotiator in meetings mm. be- because of this. Right. He, he, his complaint was always these people are so unaware. They're just in their little, you know. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> their little and box. As, so that's what you're trying to teach them is. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That all of this, all of that shamanic wisdom is completely applicable to the world we live in. Yeah, but it seems like you're going from the people who know the most you're working with, right? The shamans to these people in the boardroom who know the least. That is such a huge leap. I'll tell you you another interesting thing, teaching in Europe, they're more connected to the land. Okay. So I would start telling them stories about Peru and they would go, oh, Ah. I remember on my grandmother's farm, she would leave out a dish of milk for the spirits in the barn or she would do this or that. So those old traditions that are our ancestral traditions are just out of reach, not quite. And so they would be very quick to pick up on it and go, oh. And so if I could make those connections for them, Mm. then all of it would start to connect. Sure. That's kind of a cool. That is cool. We have taken them to Peru. Now, this was inconceivable to me 15 years ago. Yeah. Now the response of these people is so overwhelming. They're like, oh, and they tell the other people and they go, oh, when they offer that again, you gotta go. Amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing that, and again, just like Earth Day, this says to me, 
that something is changing that I don't have any control over. Mm -hmm. It's not up to me. I see this as the spirit of the Mother Earth bringing about these changes as we need them. I hope so. Mm -hmm. Well, I I have to say, your work is phenomenal. And I think if anybody can get to... Tell us about the show at UNH, how long it lasts. So the show at UNH is until... I think it's May 21st. <laughs> I think you're right. I want May yeah. 21st oh. came to my mind, too. So I yeah. think that's correct. Um, and mm-hmm. it's, it's not uh, a show of the current work. There is some recent work in there. Uh, it's more of a retrospective because I am still working on the grant project. Okay. And I'm uh-huh. also one of those people that doesn't like to show things uh, until I feel like I like to keep things contained while they're cooking. Sure, but so, there will be a show take, of that. I don't want to so. take it off the stove. Boy, I can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. So your website close. is carlaustinhyatt.com? Yes, carlaustinhyatt.com. Okay, so people can find out about when this show will be coming up, the next one that you're working on now, and see some of your fantastic work. And also I want to say the, the video of uh, Peru is wonderful, very short, but very well done about some of your work down there, and then um, uh, the Chronicle. I thought the Chronicle one was done very well, too. Gave yes, a lot of insight. They did a, they did a lovely job on into that. Into your work. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. Well, I guess we can't thank you enough for being on. This has just been fantastic. <sighs> well, thank you so very much. So thought-provoking, <laughs> for sure. Thank you both. It's been... Uh, really mind-expanding, I would say. Yeah, yeah. A good, a good chat. <laughs> Margaret, thank you for all of your questions and your potting and your... Too many questions. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was a pleasure. It really was. Yeah. I, uh, I will continue to follow your work. Hope to meet you someday. Okay. Have fun, guys. Right. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Bye. If you found inspiration from today's show, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast and share it with a friend or two on social media. Also, take a moment to write a quick review on iTunes or share your takeaways from today's show on artistsofnewengland.com under today's episode. And while you're there, you'll find links to the topics mentioned in today's show. And don't forget to peruse the growing library of podcasts and resources. Thanks for listening. you got beauty to share with the world that no other human has. So get in the ring and pick up that brush.